0: For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Jonathan Mosier. It is my privilege to get to open the Word with you this morning, uh, and to to dive into what is maybe the most profound expression of the gospel that we find uh, in Scripture. And so, if you're not there already, if you have your Bibles, turn if you would to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. There's a common occurrence. In fact, I would I, I would bet that everybody in this room has had this experience at one point or another. But In the course of your life, you probably had that moment when you were in the middle of your sleep and you were in the middle of a dream, and maybe that dream turned to a nightmare. Or maybe all of a sudden you were very cognizant of the fact that there were people that you loved who, at least in your dream, are in peril. At least for me, I've had that dream, I don't know on how many occasions, and each time the thing that I'm struck by is that when I wake up, I am all of a sudden so much more appreciative for the people that I have. Like what happened the day before, the week before, seems not to matter quite as much. My appreciation has been rekindled. My love has been redrawn to those people. Or maybe even more intensely than that, maybe you've had an experience that has created that same sort of emotion and that same sort of intensity in your life. And the closest I can think of, and some of you have had far closer brushes with death than I, but the, the closest I can think of is a time I was between my freshman and my sophomore year of college. I was home for the summer. I was driving on the intersection of 27th and Cold Spring, for those of you that know the south side of Milwaukee. And as I, as I was sitting at the light, waiting for it to turn green, the light turned green and I pulled out. And, and I didn't see it until just the very last second that it was possible, but somebody had run the red light and was coming right at me. It was a large truck going about 55 miles an hour. Now, it Turns out the driver was drunk and had all kinds of other reasons that uh, all kinds of other reasons that he was moving that fast. But 55 miles an hour, when you're when you are just pulling out into an intersection, is fast. And just as quickly as I could notice that that vehicle was barreling down towards me, it hit me. Now, fortunately for me and in God's providence, I was driving a '92 Buick Lesabre, not a small vehicle. Unfortunately, and and I shouldn't even say fortunately, by God's providence, I I had delayed just enough in coming off of the line that the truck almost just completely took off the front end of my car. I mean, had I been just a few moments sooner, that could have been it. And in a moment like that, once all the dust had settled and, and once my nerves had started to calm, the realization of what I had just experienced started to hit me. I found myself in tears frightened at the realization of what could have been. And in many ways what we find in Ephesians chapter 2 is the very same story but on a far grander scale. That's the realization that we will never fully appreciate the life that we have been given if we don't understand the death that we narrowly escaped. And this is the picture of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the most descriptive and profound expression of the gospel that perhaps we find anywhere in the New Testament. And what's so amazing and so beautiful and so intense in this expression is the language that Paul used to expound on the far-reaching, life-changing, transformational power of grace. I mean, grace is a word that we use all the time. We use it in the Christian context, we use it outside of Christian context, but for the, for the context of what we're speaking of this morning, what you need to understand about grace is that it always comes as a contradiction. It always comes in a way that you least expect, it always comes to a people that you least expect to receive it, and it always does an effect that is so far outside of our expectation of what God would do that to truly understand it, to even graze the surface of what grace is, is something that will turn your life and your world upside down. I mean, grace is, if nothing else, an expression of God's love. Grace is inherently unmerited favor, a favor from God that is completely unearned. It is unearned compassion It is unexpected love. It is unreciprocated generosity. And what's so amazing about the passage that we're going to read this morning is that when the Father gives His grace, He gives it indiscriminately favoring no one, respecting no one, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've accomplished, regardless of how good or bad your life has been, he gives it indiscriminately. It's given without tabulation and without bookkeeping. It doesn't keep score and it doesn't keep track. It's granted regardless of your merit and without expectation of reprisal. It's given with the knowledge that it's going to have to be given a thousand more times. And it's given despite the fact that it is being given to a people who are promiscuous and foolhardy. Who easily forget that grace and abuse that grace. And yet that very same grace that is most costly to our Father is given most freely by Him. That which we would expect to be guarded most preciously is given to those who could never afford it. And just when you might imagine that the stream of grace must be nearly dry, you realize that there is an inexhaustible ocean that sits behind it. It reminds me of the song, The Love of God, for those of you that know that old hymn. And there's a particular verse that says, Could we with ink the ocean fill... And were the skies of parchment made. Were every stalk on earth a quill. And every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole. Though stretched from sky to sky. See the reason that grace confounds us. The reason that grace surprises us. Is that at every expectation it's turned upside down at every turn we begin to understand more and more fully the source of that grace and the source is a is a source that we would never expect It's the story that a creator God who stands above everything and who stands before time and who had perfect communion in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who deserved perfect exaltation and perfect glory, that that very self-same God decided to enter into the brokenness and the darkness of the world, that he became like us to rescue us. And so then we see the dichotomy of grace that it comes to those who at least expect it and it does the work that we have tried and failed to accomplish. And that leads us this morning into Ephesians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 which says this. The dark news, the bad dream. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now this diagnosis applies to the whole of the human race. It applies to everyone who's ever been born into this world. And notice what Paul says here. He doesn't say that you were off track and that you needed a little bit of guidance or redirection. He doesn't say you were struggling and you needed some advice. He doesn't say that you were sick and that you needed a cure. What he says is you were dead. And what he goes on to say is that you were brought into the world that way, that literally spiritually you were stillborn. Now that's a graphic word, but I use it intentionally because it begins to put in mind the seriousness of where we found ourselves. All of this stems from Genesis chapter 3. If you remember the creation account, God creates Adam and Eve, and after each little bit of creation, God says that he looks upon what he had made and he declared it to be good. And the very last thing that he sees when he looks into creation and the first thing that we see where God says this is not good is he says that man finds himself alone. And so God creates woman to be with man. You see the first couple. You see the beauty of this relationship. You have these two people who are living in light and in the experience and the knowledge and in the love of their creator, God, in perfect harmony and in perfect relationship, walking through the garden with him, enjoying perfect marital bliss. Until one day, they decide to question God's goodness. And in doing so, they partake in sin. And what we're told is that those two people, the first people on the world, the only two people to ever have true free will, where they could truly, where they could truly choose to follow and love God, instead decided to choose Sin and in doing so as representatives of the human race they plunged a people into sin and death and right in that moment what you see is that adam and eve began to begin to experience the consequences of their decision in that moment they began to die and spiritually were in need of salvation 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5 if you want to read those on your own both go out of their way to talk about Adam's sin and the way that in in which Adam sinned we then find ourselves condemned so understand what this then means it is your nature and your identity to be a sinner you were born a nature uh, you rather you were born a sinner by nature and you choose to be a sinner so understand then what that means you are not a sinner because you sin you sin because you're a sinner It is who you are. It is your identity and your personhood. It is the essence of who you find yourself to be. And this passage is going to go so far as to say that you found yourself dead in trespasses and sins. And in using those two words, Paul is giving us a comprehensive understanding of wrongdoing. Because that first word, trespasses, means a violation of God's law. It's the idea that we have been given instruction, given expectations of how we are to live our lives, and we have violated those self-same expectations. So just think about the Ten Commandments that were given. And as you begin to tick down the list of what those expectations are, that we shouldn't bear false witness. In other words, we shouldn't lie That we shouldn't covet our neighbor's wife. In other words, you shouldn't have a desire sexually. You shouldn't have a lustful expectation or hope for someone to whom you are not married. You shouldn't commit murder. And Jesus is going to go on to say in the book of Matthew that if you hate someone in your heart, you have already committed murder against them. So on any of just the basic commands that we are given, you will find yourself guilty. And Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 4 is going to go on to say, look, or rather chapter 2 is going to go on to say, if you don't even understand Scripture, if Scripture has never been open to you, you have a law unto yourself. In other words, you have a morality of your own heart, a morality determined by your own mind and experience. And even if we just judged you according to your own morality and expectations, you would be found lacking. That we have no excuse And we stand condemned because we have violated God's law. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 7. When he says there are things that I am supposed to do. And I find myself not doing those things. And there are things that I'm not supposed to do. And I find myself committing those sins. That we have broken the law of God by sins of commission. Doing things he told us not to do. And omission. Not doing the things that we have been told to do. And understand that in those violations of the law, in those transgressions, your actions are just validating your nature. You are just living out who you already are outside of Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, he's going to go on to say not only transgressions, not only these violations of the law, but also sins. And sin is a very broad category. You could apply it in many ways. But I think what Paul is trying to communicate here in putting it in tandem with the other instruction is that sin in this context is to miss the mark of God's expectation. It's to fall short of what the expectation of God is. It's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That God has a standard of what it means to live righteously and to glorify him. So in other words, there may be some in this room who would say, well, look, as much as you've described the trespasses of God, I don't don't think I'm in violation. I don't think there's anything that I've done wrong. I don't think there's any area in which I could be found guilty. Well, first of all, the Bible is going to say that's not true, and there's all kinds of ways that we could go about demonstrating that. But let's just, for the purpose of illustration, illustration, assume that that is true. Let's assume that somehow in your life you have managed to avoid those violations of the law that we find throughout Scripture. In this use of the word sin, what Paul is going to go on to say is that in the very fact that you have striven to live a life that meets the standard and the expectation and the glory of God, you have been found lacking. In other words, if you did nothing wrong in terms of violating the law, you are still found guilty because you are trying to attain for yourself what only God could give you. It's idolatry at its heart. So, while there are things that we'd recognize as trespasses that are morally objectionable, sins can also include things that are not wrong inherently. It's you trying to do what only God can accomplish. What he's saying is because you are dead spiritually, that spiritual death has tainted everything, that dead people don't make good decisions. What's fascinating is that regardless of where you find yourself in this room today, whether you're a spiritual person or a non-spiritual person, if you're religious or irreligious, if you're a Christian or anything else, what's amazing is that innately, before knowing Christ, we have a sense of trying to find our own salvation. That your own heart and soul gives testimony to the fact that you are in need of life. And so, maybe for some, it's a feeling of emptiness that you try to fill with accomplishment or achievement. Maybe it's a sense of loneliness for which you try to compensate through relationships. Maybe it's a sense of guilt that you try to assuage through good deeds what this passage is saying is that any effort you make to impress or achieve or attain is an innate desire to give life to what is dead. That we feel our death and we want to cure our state. And so our default setting is to launch ourselves into a crusade of self-salvation. And so we fill our minds and we fill our notebooks and we fill our Bibles with good instructions to follow, with lists of expectations and good deeds and right things, striving to find something that brings fulfillment and satisfaction. And what this passage is saying is that to the extent that you are doing good deeds, divorced from the fact of your realization of needing Jesus Christ, you are actually piling up good deeds that need to be damned. It's what Luther goes out of his way to say when he says, we need forgiveness not only for our misdeeds, but also for our damnable good works. That outside of Christ, there is nothing you accomplish that is worth anything. And so in these two words, trespasses and sins, what you find are the positive and the negative aspects of wrongdoing wrongdoing that we know to be morally offensive and wrongdoing that we think is somehow good, but which God finds incredibly offensive. And the truth is that through either one of those standards, God looks upon our heart and he recognizes us, in the words of John Stott, as both rebels and failures. That leads us to verse 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we're not going to go into detail into all of these things, but obviously, what we find here is a very rough depiction. Because if you notice what he says, he breaks us into three categories. There's two external and one internal. And he says, first, you followed the course of this world. It's as if the world has paved out train tracks for you to follow, and you are just moving down that line. You are just following the path that's been set out for you, regardless of who God is, regardless of what God has created you to be, and neglecting the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished for you. You are just headed in one direction. You are following a path that somebody else has set, and the end of that path is condemnation and suffering. And he goes on to say, you followed the prince of the power of the air. Literally, he's talking about Satan. And at this point, there's something in us that goes, are you serious? You're telling me that by virtue of the fact that I may or may not recognize Jesus Christ as my Savior, that prior to Christ, if I, if I know him, or without Christ, if I don't know him, that I'm following Satan I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit much? Isn't that a little bit strong? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, regardless of whether or not you recognize Satan's influence in this world, it is very real, it is very powerful, and it is very influential. And the mindset that says, I do not need Jesus Christ, I do not need God the Father, I can attain this on my own, I can accomplish this on my own, is the same conceited attitude that led Lucifer to change his name and become Satan. It's the same It's the same sin that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. And as if all of that is not enough, he's going to go on and say that you begin to live in the passions of your own flesh. It's that Greek word, apathoumia, which literally means an over-desire So again, he's not talking here necessarily about morally repugnant things, but what he's saying is is you have a desire that is so strong, so intense, so powerful in your heart and in your life that it dominates everything else that you do, that you are chasing after something in which to find your meaning and your identity other than Jesus Christ. So I heard one pastor tell a story this way, and I thought it was such a helpful illustration. He was discussing the same text with, with one of his parishioners. And he said to this man, who is was, who was a believer, uh, he was explaining to him the ways in which before Christ we are actually following the example of Satan. And this man said, well, he goes, look, before I met God, I, I don't remember feeling any kinds of hatred toward God. I mean, maybe I just felt indifferent towards God, but I certainly didn't feel hatred towards him. And the pastor's response to this man wisely was, understand that indifference towards God is Hatred towards God He is the Creator, and we are the creatures. We were created to be dependent. So let me put it in this illustration it would be it would be like a good parent raising up a small child and nourishing that child and feeding that child and caring for that child and clothing that child and loving that child and protecting that child and doing everything in that child's best interest, sacrificing themselves and their finances and their skill sets and their time for the sake of pouring love and devotion and care onto that child. And it would be like that child then growing up and turning to the parents and saying, look, I know you raised me and clothed me and loved me and sustained me and protected me, but I just feel meh. About you. You see, indifference towards someone on whom you depend is an insult. And as people who were created to be subject to our king, to ignore or to be indifferent to that king is inherently treason. And when you begin to understand that that same king that you are choosing indifference towards is actually the king of the universe, then the realization is that the sin you've committed is cosmic treason. You have said to the all-powerful creator of the world, I do not need you. I do not want you. There is nothing I need you for. I can do everything on my own. It is spitting in the face of God. See, we don't get the option to be lovers of God or indifferent about God because indifference by its nature is hatred. And because of all that, Paul is going to say that you were born as children of wrath, that what all of us deserved because of our ignorance and because of our indifference or because of our passionate hatred or because of our conceit or our self-reliance, what all of us deserve is an eternity apart from God. That in some sense, hell is getting exactly what we want. That once we've said to God, we don't want you, we don't need you, I'm fine by myself, God is saying, you are welcome to have that. We were born as children of wrath. And all of this description is what makes verse 4 so incredible. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now notice what he said, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive with him. I mean, think about this. He is talking about the very same people that he described in verses one through three. People who lived lives of indifference and hatred, people who lived lives of self-reliance and rejection, people who lived lives of rebellion and failure. And in verse 4, what we're told is that God, by his very same nature, in the same way that our nature is to be sinners and to receive God's wrath, God, by his very nature, is loving. And therefore, his love is in constant overflow. It is constantly being poured out. It is unending. And we're told that God, because of the great love with which he loved us, did all of these things. That while we were still dead, he made us alive with Christ by grace. And God in this verse is revealing here the two sides of his love. First, you see in verse four, God being rich in mercy. See, mercy is a beautiful word. Because mercy is God's answer to justice. Justice is getting exactly what you deserve, it's the punishment or the response. That is directly meted out in proportion to what it is that you did. Or in this case, who you are. And to to get what is fair before God is to receive his justice. It It is to receive the condemnation. But God in his love shows us mercy. See, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment that you deserve. And as if that wasn't enough, he says, not only am I not going to pour out mercy, but he says at the end of verse 4 and into verse 5, he says, but I'm going to make you alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And grace, that unmerited favor, that unreciprocated love, grace is getting what you don't deserve. What Paul says is, while you are dead, while you were in the middle of your sin and your mess, while you were in the middle of your rebellion and your rejection, in that moment, Christ came in with grace to save you. One of the amazing things we find in verse 5 is this little word, saved. Saved is another interesting word in our vocabulary because it's one that we use in a Christian context all the time. And very often without any sort of explanation as to what it actually means. We talk about the fact that we're saved. We sing about the fact that we're saved. We refer to ourselves as people who are saved. And in this verse is the reason why we so often use that word because it's the, it's the end game of redemption. It's the end game of rescue, that you find yourself to be saved. And what's amazing about its use in this context is that word that's translated saved is a perfect participle, which means that you have been saved, you have received salvation, and that you will remain forever saved. That if you know Jesus Christ, if your life has been transformed by him, if you've received his grace and his mercy, if you've had the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your heart, that you have been saved, and that the ongoing actions of that initiating action continue forever without end. That your salvation is not just one mere moment in time, but that you were saved, you are saved, and you are in the process of being saved. Do you understand that? That from now through the end of time... That work of salvation has an ongoing effect. What is that effect? Look at verse 6. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He made us alive. He raised us up with him. And he seated us with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And notice what he says there. He says, you were seated, past tense. How is that possible? We're all gathered in this room today. We're all sitting here talking and having a, I guess it's a one-way conversation. (laughs) So how is it possible that we were seated with Christ? Well, he's talking here, of course, about the spiritual effects that have been applied to your heart. And really what he's getting at is your union with Christ. That in the great exchange on the cross, when all of your sin, past, present, and future, was put onto the body of Jesus Christ, and when all of his goodness, past, present, and future, was placed onto your heart, that you were made one with him. It's the reason that we refer to ourselves as being in Christ And that when you were saved, when you were unified with Jesus Christ, that when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and sat down in that honored position at the right hand of the throne of God, that you are sitting in that very same position with him. That you are partakers in the resurrection. That you have received new life. That you are in the process of receiving a new victory. Victory over sin in this life and eternally. Victory over the very presence of sin. So why does he do all of this? Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus So here's one of the problems that we have in our Christian life. We love to talk about grace. And we love describing grace. And we love talking about the effects that grace has in our heart. And we love to, we love to sing about it. We love to think about it. But so often in our life, we think, of something, we think of grace as something that did happen. Well, grace is what brought me into salvation. But then we decide to make the work our own we begin to think that we are no longer in need of grace, but that grace was something we used to be in need of. And what's amazing about this passage is he is saying, no, you never grow beyond your need of grace. That the grace that he is beginning to show you now, he will continue to show you for an eternity. That in the life to come, we will spend an eternity understanding all of the implications of his grace and experiencing all the benefits of his grace. Since God's grace is in and of itself an inexhaustible ocean, this text is saying you will never grow weary of the experience of the fullness of God's grace. And this is something that we can't even begin to comprehend in this life. And I remember sitting in junior church when I was a kid, and I remember our junior church teacher trying to explain to us what heaven is like. And here's the description that she chose. She said, heaven is like a church service that never ends. (laughs) That is not heaven, by the way. See, we have such a difficulty understanding what it is to explore and begin to understand the the context and the influences and the benefits of grace eternally because we grow bored in this life. We very quickly want to move on to the next thing. We very very quickly think that we have understood everything that there is to be understood about a particular topic and then we just want to move on. And here's what God has done in my life, and I won't speak for anybody else, but at least in my heart, here's, here's what he's done for me that I so appreciate. With each step of growth in my Christian walk, with each significant milestone um, that, I, that I feel like I've come to in my spiritual life, it has, it has each and every time been directly connected with a deeper understanding of God's grace. I mean, every time I think I have an, a concept or an understanding of what grace is, God, in his glory and in his love, reveals something else to me in Scripture. And he reveals some facet, some, some approach, some benefit of grace that I had never before understood. I can't tell you how many times my concept and understanding of grace has been flipped. And I think that's a microcosm, an imperfect representation of what eternity is. To have a perfect mind in Christ, to have a perfect body and a new perfect heart untainted by the influences of anything in this world, to sit in the presence of God Almighty, to learn and grow and understand each day afresh and anew the influences of His grace. I mean, it's something we just get a taste of in this life. And to the extent that we get a taste of it in this life, it is transformative. It rocks our world. It changes our understanding. It changes everything about who we are. And that's just a taste of it. See, God is so deep. He's so beautiful. His riches are so profound and immeasurable that it's going to take the coming ages for us to continue to experience these things. In fact, it'll take forever. And what you and I will do in that time is we will serve as exhibits of God's skill in the process of transformation. And we will sit as trophies of his grace. In verse 8, he continues this thought. He says, and I want you to hear this because these last three verses are so profound. I wish we could just take weeks to dive into these three. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Dave, when he was preaching a few weeks ago, cited this quote from Jonathan Edwards, but it was so profound, I want to bring it up again. He said this, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin That made it necessary. And what this verse is saying is: you are saved by grace through faith. Do you know what you bring to the salvation equation? Nothing. Nothing. You bring nothing to it except the sin and the rejection and the rebellion that required God to step in and save you while you are still warring against him, while you are still shaking your fist in his face. He intervenes with his grace and his faith. And Paul's going to say, as if his grace isn't enough, he's going to go on to clarify that even the faith to believe is his gift. Look again what he says. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, which references both grace and faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And here's the reason that I love this. I love this because our tendency is to view this as some sort of exchange where God and I or where God and me are are working hand in hand to accomplish something. So God, you bring the grace that I can't provide and I'll bring the faith that you can't provide and together we'll accomplish great things. And guess what? I get to be the hero of my own story. Because I am bringing something to my salvation. And what Paul's going to say is absolutely not. Because if you brought your own faith to the party, now you have something to boast in. You get to say to God, well sure you brought grace, but look at all this faith. And here's how foolish and simple minded we are. We're even okay if the equation gets a little bit off. We're fine with the idea that God brings 99% of what we need for our salvation and we just offer this 1%. But Paul's not going to let you get away with that. Because what he's going to say is, how much faith does a dead person have to offer? If you're dead, unresponsive, not only unwilling to pursue God, but completely unable, how in the world does a person like that get to a position of offering faith that they don't have to a God they don't know? And Paul's saying, absolutely not. That's not the way that it works. So Paul goes out of his way to say, you don't get to take credit for any of this. And let me explain to you. Lest any of that come across as harsh, let me explain to you why that's actually a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing because if your faith, if the faith that you were able to muster and you were able to produce, somehow affects, impacts, or fills in your own salvation, then you should have absolutely no confidence in your salvation. You should live a life of constant terror. Terror wondering if you were really sincere in that moment when you were trying to muster up enough faith, if you'd really believed the way that you ought to. What if I didn't have the exact right doctrine of who Christ is? What if I didn't know enough about God to actually place my faith in that God? What if my understanding of who I am has changed since that moment of salvation? See, if you muster your own faith, then you not only get to take credit, but you also get to take blame. And God's saying, I don't want you to live in that place of constant flux where you don't know where your eternity lies, where you don't know where you stand before me. He goes, I don't want you to live in that constant place of unassurance and of fear. See, if your salvation is a result of faith that you can muster even a little bit, then you have something to boast in. And if you have something to boast in, then you also have something to worry about. But understand this, it is not the sincerity of your prayer that saves you, it is not the sincerity of anything that you can muster that saves you. It is the faith that God gives you that is made perfect in Jesus Christ, applied through the grace of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life that brings you to redemption and resurrection. It brings life where there was only death. It brings transformation where there was rebellion. It brings sonship where there was just somebody warring against God. And he's going to go on to say this. Now, with all of this being said, he wants to finish with this beautiful expression that we talked about the very first week. He says, for we are his workmanship. Do you know what that word workmanship means? It's the same word that that ancient Greek uses to describe an epic poem. Saying, imagine, imagine the works of Shakespeare laid out before you. Imagine the greatest literary works in all of history. Imagine the poetic beauty of the language, the the amazing, uh, the, the amazing nature of the stories that they are telling. I mean, just imagine the beauty and the wonder. Imagine all the effort and all the work and the years that went into producing that sort of literature. And he says, that's just a, it's just a reflection of the kind of workmanship that God has made you to be. He has created in you His masterpiece. And this isn't some sort of feel-goodism. This isn't trying to hype you up for something. This is the same idea that that Paul is talking about when he says that you are God's inheritance. That God has so much value on your life. That so much of his spiritual wealth, if I can use that that half-appropriate term, that so much of his spiritual wealth is tied up in you that he views you as his inheritance, his masterpiece, his work of art. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now listen, the rule followers and the checklist makers and the legalists among us are going to be really excited at this verse because all you heard is the part about good works. Okay, good. Here's my spot to give something. Here's where I come in. All right, I got my list. I got my pen. Tell me what I need to do. What are the things that me and God are going to get this? We've got it accomplished. Just tell me what it is I need to do. And you have totally missed the point of everything we've talked about up until this point. Because notice what he says and the language here, here is so vital He is not indicating that you have been saved on the onus that it is somehow your responsibility to keep yourself there. That would contradict everything he's laid out. But understand this, if everything that you need, you already have in Jesus Christ, then you are now free to stop living for yourself. You're free to abandon the crusade towards your own salvation, in your own power, in your own strength. You're free to stop trying to impress other people. And you're free to pour out your life for others. That through your good deeds, they would be drawn to your Savior. In other words, the gospel of grace never terminates on itself. It never ends with you. It's always replicating. It's always multiplying. It's always pushing out. It's always spinning off. It's always transforming. And so people tend to read this verse and they say, okay, I'm saved, now let's do the good works. But notice what he says here, because I'm not trying to get you to not do good works. What I'm trying to get you to see is what is the motivation and the cause of your good works. And notice what he says. He says, the good works have been created and now you'll walk in them. And understand the implication of that and consider what he's saying here. He's saying however it is that God has made you, however he's wired you to be, whatever things he put into your heart and to your mind, the, the unique way that you think and feel and act, the unique giftings and skill sets that you have, the unique way that you communicate yourself, however broken it might seem to you or anybody else, God has not made a mistake with that. And he has wired you in such a way to accomplish good works that he set out before you. So whatever job you have, whatever stage of life you're in, whatever station of life you possess, wherever you find yourself in society or in your family or in the church or in the community, you do not have to necessarily go looking for these good deeds. God has laid them before you. He's placed you where you are intentionally and with purpose in the neighborhood in which you find yourself, in the job that you hold, with the family that's around you, with the kids that are in your home, with the person that you're dating, with your husband or your wife, all around you. He is dropping opportunities for for good works and good deeds born out of a new knowledge of who you are in Jesus Christ. Good deeds that are born of the grace that he has poured out on your heart. And what he's saying is you've now been set free to pursue those things. To follow in those pathways that God has set for you. So to bring this all together when Paul writes in verse 6 that we've been seated with the Father. What he has said is that the glory that we have been so desperate for the things we have worked so hard to attain find their realization In the person of Christ. That Jesus did for you so completely what you could not do for yourself that he even met the needs and the desires that you have for glory. And that you find them perfectly in him. We sang a lyric earlier in the song All I Have Is Christ. In the very last verse, those last four lines, here's what it says O Father, Use my ransomed life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be, my only boast is you. As much as God has removed the ability that you have to boast in yourself, he has also given you an amazing spiritual gift of being able to boast in him. And it's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 where he writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So how is it that you go from being a person who is dominated by the world, dominated by the thinking of the world under the influence of satanic powers, following the pathway of the world that's been set before you, enslaved to the passions of your own mind? How do you go from that to boasting in Jesus Christ. Because in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the world has been crucified to you and you to the world. You've been given a new heart, a new life, new affections, new emotions, new motivations to live as a new person, a disciple of that same Christ. What a gift we've been given. Lord, we thank you that when we've been there 10,000 years, 10 million years, 10 billion years, we will have no less days to sing your praise than when we first began. Lord, we thank you that we will spend eternity knowing you and experiencing the benefits of your amazing grace for us. God, I pray that as a church we would be marked as a people of grace and our understanding of who we've been made to be in Jesus Christ and in our interactions with those who don't yet know you. So God, do the work of transformation in us that we can't do ourselves. And with the grace that brought us to this point in our life, lead us home.